Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John uh, chapter 20. We're continuing our series called Life uh, Resurrected. And uh, we're looking at the time of Jesus' life uh, after his resurrection and before his ascension and seeing what we can learn about God, his salvation, about Jesus, and even about us through this passage. You know, there are a few historical figures who have succeeded so wildly or failed so spectacularly or just had such interesting personalities, unlike anyone else, that they have become synonymous, their names have become synonymous with their exploits. And in fact, their names are even sometimes used as shade or as a dig against someone else. Uh, for example, if you have you had a friend in your life who kind of sidled up to you, always looking for the latest information, kind of wormed his way into your life, asking questions, trying to figure things out about you, trying to get the inside scoop, only to find that same friend turn against you and use the information that he had discovered against you, you might say about him, he's a real Benedict Arnold. In reference to the Revolutionary War, a one-time hero who went on to become uh, perhaps America's best-known traitor. Or maybe you have a friend, and, and she's really known for her feistiness, and she's ready to fight at the drop of a hat, and you go out for dinner with her, just the two of you, and you're sitting in a booth waiting for them to call your name for your table, and you look in her purse, and you see that she has a pistol in there. You might say to her, who are you, Annie Oakley? Or maybe you go, you play basketball at the YMCA, and uh, there's a guy who just won't pass the ball. He's constantly jacking up shots. He will not share the ball. And you kind of mutter under your breath, this guy thinks he's Michael Jordan. And of course, if you've seen the, the latest documentary to come out on Michael Jordan, this 10-part series, you may think to yourself, I know Michael Jordan, and this guy is no Michael Jordan. Or maybe you have a friend, and she always seems so cynical about everything. Even if the facts are so clearly right in front of her, she just won't believe. She doesn't believe. You may say to her, look, don't be such a doubting Thomas. Well, this morning we're going to find, uh, look at the sort of origin of that phrase, where it comes from. Um, but I should say this, it's not really about Thomas. It's really about Jesus, as John has made clear his whole gospel is about. Um, so the, the point is not going to be don't be a doubting Thomas, but in fact, we're, we're going to start, study this passage so we might learn more about Jesus. Uh, turn with me again. We'll be in John chapter 20. Uh, let me begin by reading verses 24 and 25. The word of the Lord reads this way. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I want to pause there because I think we see something very important about the nature of doubt. It's still Easter Sunday, uh, and by this time, it's, uh, it's later in the evening. The disciples have spent time with Jesus, 10 of the disciples, along with a few other people like uh, Cleopas. They've met with Jesus. They've seen him. Jesus has greeted them with this warm greeting, peace be with you, and they have seen his scars. Now, after this incredible experience, seeing and talking to the risen Jesus, the disciples find Thomas, one of the original twelve, who wasn't with them when Jesus appeared to them, and they tell Thomas about all they've experienced, but he doesn't believe them. 
I heard one preacher say that the real moral to the story here is don't be late to church. Uh, when your brothers and sisters in Christ gather together, be on time. You never know what you might miss out on. And I don't really think that's the point of this passage. It is perhaps true. If you're late for church, you may miss out on something amazing. But here, Thomas, who's called the twin, we don't really know why. His name in Greek, Adidimus, does mean twin, but we're never told uh, who he might be a twin of. Um, he's missed out. Thomas has missed out on seeing Jesus. And when the other disciples tell Thomas what they've seen, how does he respond? He says in the last part of verse 25, I will never believe. He doesn't say he can't believe. In other words, he said, it's so difficult for me to believe. I don't know if I can get there. I'm having a hard time. He says, I will never believe. I won't believe. There's a big difference between can't and won't. If you've been around Capshaw very long, you've heard my testimony uh, in some form or fashion. I'm not going to repeat the whole thing uh, now, um, but you know that the first couple of years of our marriage, uh, Janine and I really struggled. We had a very difficult marriage, and it was due almost uh, entirely to my own selfishness, my own uh, ignorance as a 22-year-old. I insisted on playing sports three to, five, three to four hours every day. This is not an exaggeration. Every day, basketball, tennis, golf, whatever it was, I was always gone. Every evening, I was gone. And, of course, that takes a toll on a young marriage, or really any marriage for that matter. There was one time when Janine was working in the hospital at that time, working a lot of hours. I was working a lot of hours and playing a lot of sports. And uh, we were sitting in the car after, coming, uh, after just getting out of the grocery store, and Janine said to me something like, I would love to cook dinner for you every night, but with all this going on in my life, I just can't. And I said to her, can't or won't? Now let me tell you what I learned very quickly, instantaneously. That was not the right thing to say. Uh, and young men, if you have a list that, that you say one of the top ten things never to say to your wife, that's got to be up there somewhere. That statement has come back to haunt me uh, over the years. Now we laugh about it, but then, I promise you, Janine was not laughing. Can't is different than won't. Thomas says, in essence, I won't believe. I will never believe. I refuse to. Now, here's the first thing I want you to see from this passage this morning. Doubt is as much volitional as it is intellectual or emotional. And you say, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means that typically doubt is as much a willful choice as it is some sort of intellectual or emotional hang-up. If you've ever shared your faith with someone, and, and of course we have to share our faith if we're going to accomplish the, the mission that Jesus sent us on, then you've probably gotten all kinds of objections to the Christian faith. Some of those are intellectual objections. Someone may say to you, well, doesn't science disprove the existence of God. And some people may actually give you an emotional objection. They say, I look around and I see all the suffering in the world. How could there be a good God and still be all that's suffering? Sometimes the, object, the objections are more, uh, we might say, familial or cultural. In other words, someone says, well, I don't know, what will my parents think? What will my parents do if I actually turn to Christ in faith? So there are all kinds of objections that we experience um, and most of the time, these, these, are, these are earnest, genuine questions. Not always, but most of the time. But according to apologists, the single greatest deterrent to people turning to God in repentant faith is neither intellectual nor emotional. It is volitional. In other words, 
people refuse to believe because they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe because they fear that by doing so, it would ruin everything they have going on in their life. There is this fear that some people have when they, that if they consider Christianity, they turn to faith in Jesus, that my life will be over. Not, not of course, literally, but for all intents and purposes. In other words, my life will now be dull. It will be boring. It will be miserable. All the things that I used to love to do, I'm going to have to stop doing. Now, we'll see in just a minute how to handle that objection as we get a little further in this passage. But this is the way that many people approach Jesus and the Christian faith. And we don't know if Thomas's objection was intellectual or if it was emotional, but clearly he was making a bold choice. He refuses to believe that Jesus has been risen from the dead. Uh, the late uh, theologian Raymond Brown, biblical scholar, writes this, No other gospel account of a post-resurrectional appearance pays so much attention to an individual's attitude toward the risen Jesus. This is because Thomas has become here the personification of an attitude. Now, what is that attitude? Frankly, it's the attitude of stubbornness, the willful refusal to believe. Now, part of it is, we can say, is understandable, I guess, given all that Thomas has seen and heard and experienced. But it does seem hard-hearted. And this attitude continues for a whole week, actually. Look at verses 26 through 29. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he, that is Jesus, said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So eight days later, it's really just a Hebrew idiom. It means actually the very next week. So it was the very next Sunday. It was the first Sunday after Easter Sunday. And the disciples are gathered together again, and this time Thomas is with him. So no, no being late for church uh, for Thomas this time, as it were. And like he did with the 10 plus on Easter, Jesus again appears in the middle of them, even though the doors were locked. Now, John records this detail not to show that the, the disciples were fearful people. You know, they always had to have the doors locked or, or even to disparage the Jewish community of the day. Um, John includes this detail to point out the miraculous way that Jesus keeps showing up. Now, I said to you last week that we would spend some time this week talking about Jesus' glorified body and, and what that means to us, but even more is going to be revealed about it next week when Jesus cooks breakfast for his friends. So we're actually going to talk more about the glorified body uh, next week, but I will say this, what Jesus shows Thomas is a real physical body. He said to Thomas, put your hand in my hand, feel my scars, put your hand in my side. It's really me. Jesus patiently and tenderly welcomes Thomas and his doubts. He even again extends that very warm and loving greeting to Thomas. Peace be yours. In other words, you, you know, I'm forgiving you. Don't worry about your disappearance. Don't worry about what you've done in the past. I'm here and I'm extending mercy to you. Now you can't go through the Gospel of John without seeing, being captivated by the grace of Jesus. 
Seems like it's in every story, every pericope. We see Jesus extending his mercy, Jesus welcoming those who were, who were written off by everyone else, Jesus uh, extending a warm welcome to the outcast, Jesus healing those who didn't even really believe that he had the power to heal. He provides for those who cannot provide for themselves, and this is no exception. Far from being put off, I think this is so good, far from being put off by Thomas's doubts, and really his seemingly endless doubting, Jesus gives Thomas what he longs to see even before Thomas ever asks. One theologian writes this, Should a Lord be so accommodating? But isn't this accommodation almost the wonder of Jesus' entire incarnation and most climatically the wonder of his whole crucifixion? The cross is the ultimate display of the accommodation, we might say the condescension of Jesus. He comes down to a helpless and broken and sin-cursed people who have no way to save themselves. And he actually lives the life that they were required to live, that we were called to live but failed to live. Dies the death in their place. Was raised again for their justification. And we see that sort of condescension throughout John's gospel. All the way back to John 1, this Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan River all the way up to the night before he would be killed as Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, this humiliating act as if to say, I have humbled myself. It was all in the shadow of the cross. I will humble myself, remaining obedient even to death for you. It's all about grace. But when we read this very direct, almost terse command by Jesus in verse 27 where he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. We say, well, wait a second, that, that doesn't seem very gracious. Well, let me suggest to you that even this imperative to Thomas, this command to believe, is actually a demonstration of incredible grace. Here's our second point this morning. Jesus' command to believe is yet another expression of his welcoming grace. There's a great travesty in Christian preaching, and I'm sure that I've uh, offended in this way many times. And really, it's a, it's, a, it's a travesty that happens in Christian counseling as well, and that is to confuse law and gospel. In fact, many theologians have written about this over the years. They've said something almost eerily similar. If you go back to Martin Luther of the 16th century, John Cahoon of the 18th century, uh, C.F.W. Walter of the 19th century, even Michael Horton just a few years ago, they make this point that the worst thing that a preacher can do in his ministry is confuse law and gospel. And I think one, Michael Horton goes so far as to say, the worst thing that can happen to a church is for the church to confuse law and gospel. The law represents everything that God has commanded us to do. The imperatives, the commands, the expectations, law is demand. The gospel represents everything that God has done for us in Christ. Gospel appears as good news. If it doesn't sound like good news to you, it's not gospel. The gospel is grace. Now, pastors confuse law and gospel when they subtly suggest that obedience to the law, obedience to the commands of Scripture, is what saves us, is what reconciles us to God, is what even gains or garners for us God's approval. 
Pastors also confuse law and gospel when they think that by telling people what to do, standing at a lectern, standing at the pulpit, demanding that people do something, even if it's from the Scriptures, that they're actually going to have the power to do those things. And the same is true in counseling. Just telling someone who is anxious to stop being anxious is actually going to lead to what? More anxiety. Why is it that I've been told to stop being anxious, but I can't stop being anxious? What's wrong with me? More anxiety. Just telling one who's caught up in pornography, pornography that they need to stop it does nothing over the long haul. What they need is a change of affections. What they need is a change of desires. They need is a change in what they love, and that can only be brought on by the Spirit through the good news of the gospel. And by the way, parents confuse law and gospel when they believe that by getting their children to comply with their orders, they've actually made great headway, spiritually speaking. See, the law is good. It's perfect. It's right. It's pure. It reveals what God requires of us. It shows us the best way. It gives us God's blueprint for our lives. And that way, it's a beautiful thing. But it cannot revive a dead heart. It cannot even soften a hard heart. Only the gospel can do that. In fact, in some ways, the law actually incites greater rebellion. Paul says this in Romans 5.20. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, to increase the sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is why when we're told to do something, especially we're told to do something sternly, we immediately want to do the opposite. And when we make a demand of our kids, I, I, this just happened to me the other day as I told my kids, hey, your mom's working tonight, go wash the dishes, make sure the kitchen is spotless. When we make demands of our kids, we can see in their eyes their desire to rebel. But if all that's true then how can I say that Jesus' command here to believe is an expression of grace? Well, sometimes, sometimes the categories of law and grace are not so clear. Sometimes there's actually law in what appears to be grace, and there's actually grace in what appears to be just a straight-up command. For example, sometimes a parent will say to a child or a coach will say to a player, you are so much better than that. Now, on the surface, that sounds like grace. I believe in you. I have confidence in your abilities or your giftedness. But in reality, it's just law. You should be doing better than that. You must do better than that. You're not doing enough. It's just law, disguised as grace. There's a beautiful scene in a movie that came out a few years ago. One, like, actually, it was nominated, I think, for five Academy Awards. And it's about a teenage girl who doesn't really fit in at home or at school she kind of gives herself her nickname that she asks everyone else to call her. and She's a bit of a free spirit. She's always kind of fighting with her mom. Her mom is, you watch the movie, her mom is the embodiment of law. Always demanding. It's never enough. It's never good enough. Her mom's love has to be earned by good grades or good behavior. And there's one really powerful scene, really telling scene, I think, where the daughter is, is at a store trying on a dress. She's in the, the dressing room, the fitting room, and the mom is waiting outside. And you can see that the, the girl just really, she's desperate for her mom's approval. Finally, mom will say, I'm beautiful. Mom will let me know how much she cherishes me. 
She puts on the dress, she opens the door, she comes out, and her mom, while shaking her head, says, yeah, I just want you to be the best version of you. Now, that may sound like grace. Well, I, I, I value you, you're beautiful, whatever, but really, it's nothing more than law. It's saying, you're not meeting my expectations now. You're not meeting my standards. See, sometimes the things that even sound like on the surface to be grace are nothing more than law disguised. On the flip side, sometimes a statement that seems like law is actually grace. And such is the case here with Jesus. What Jesus says to Thomas, yes, it is a direct command. Grammatically, syntactically, contextually, this is a law. Don't disbelieve, believe. But actually, it's more grace than law. And I say that because it's actually a loving invitation to a new life, a believing life, a life in fellowship with God as opposed to a life against God. Even though Jesus is especially patient with Thomas, I mean, Jesus is done with the argumentation here. He's given Thomas all the credible evidence, all the reason for Thomas to believe. He said, look at my real physical body. Put your fingers in my scars. You can tell that it's me risen from the dead. So Jesus has given credible evidence, and he's really done with the argumentation. And I think there's much we can learn from this. There is room in the church of Jesus Christ for doubters. There is room for those who are seeking Jesus. And I think we have to say, on some level, we all have doubts. We all have questions that remain unanswered. But just like he did with Thomas, Jesus has given us all the credible evidence we need. The Holy Scriptures, the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, the very existence of the church. We saw the disciples had scattered once Jesus was arrested the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus calls on us to believe, which is in fact an invitation to something so much better that we can ever enjoy on our own, something so much better than the sort of self-directed life. It is life with God, life in relationship, in a reconciled relationship with the God of the universe. Well, what are we to believe? We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that His resurrection was preceded by His death, and it was a death on our behalf, a death which we, in part, actually caused by our sin. Jesus calls us to believe that He is the true King of kings, the true Lord, not just a Savior, but our Savior. Not just a God, but actually our God. And this is exactly what Thomas concludes. Thomas, the text says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This is the only place in all four of the Gospels where Jesus is referred to by anybody else as God. Now certainly Jesus' I am statements, they, they, they bear witness to his, his deity. And certainly the prologue of John's Gospel reveals to us Christ's deity in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And to be sure, we see this sort of uh, this escalating Christology in the other professions of faith that we see in John's Gospel. For example, the woman at the well in, in John 4, or the man who was born blind in John 9. But only here is Jesus addressed by someone else as God. And as scholar Leon Morris says, we must give the term God all 
that it will hold. In other words, Thomas knows that standing in front of him is the very God who put the stars in their place, the very God who was there at creation, the very God who came and actually died in his place. And, of course, that would change everything for Thomas. He went from being a doubter, and by the way, we shouldn't really single out Thomas so much because all the disciples were doubters, but he went from being a doubter to being one of the boldest and most fearless of all the apostles. According to multiple traditions, Thomas traveled outside the Roman Empire to uh, the Far East, to India. Uh, there he was able to preach the gospel and baptize disciples, and, and many believe that uh, he made it all the way to uh, modern-day Kerala, where he was killed for his faith in Jesus Christ, killed by a spear. You can see the irony there. True belief, which is commanded by and provided by the Lord Jesus, changes everything in our lives. It doesn't mean we all have to go and become cross-cultural missionaries or go to some far-off country, but it does mean that our affections are drastically changed. What we love, what we're passionate about, what moves us, those things are changed. What we are trusting in changes and, and whom we serve changes. Now look at verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now John makes it very clear in this gospel why he wrote what he wrote. He gives us, this is the purpose statement. If you've ever written a, a paper in high school or college, you need a purpose statement. Here is the purpose statement for John's gospel. I have written these things so that for the purpose that you would believe. That's why John writes his gospel. In fact, the theme of believing runs throughout this entire book. And in fact, it's actually peppered in just about every chapter. Chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Chapter 2. Then they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken of. Chapter 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Chapter 4, Many believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. Whoever hears my Word, chapter 5, and believes in Him who sent me. And I'm not going to go on for the whole book, but this, you see, this theme, it just pops up over and over and over. Believe. And you say, well, where's the part in the, about getting your act together and turning your life around and starting to, to be a good person and so on. Where's the part about repentance? Well, repentance is actually the fruit of true belief. This is why Jesus says over and over again, believe, right? Those who believe are made alive and thus spiritually enabled to worship, serve, obey, and repent. Edward Fisher, who was a terrific English theologian in the 17th century, wrote, The truth is, a repentant sinner first believes that God will do that which he promiseth, namely, pardon his sin, take away his iniquity, and then he rests in the hope of it. And from that, and because of it, he leaves sin and will forsake his old course because it is displeasing to God and will do that which is pleasing and acceptable to him. 
To believe is to recognize who Jesus is. This is exactly what John has just said. And also what Jesus has done for us. That he died, again, not just for the world's sin, but for my sin because I am a sinner. That he was raised not just for some generic uh, justification, but for my justification because I needed to be justified before a holy God. To believe is to trust in a Savior that I know I need because I need to be saved because of my sin. And it is in believing that we have life. I said a, a few moments ago I would answer the question to the volitional objection. Well, what if I believe in Jesus? Then won't I lose my life? I'll lose everything that I enjoyed. And I think the question, the answer to that question is actually a question. And I think it's this. Do you actually believe that a life filled with uncertainty, a life lived apart from a creator, a life filled with endless, uh, meaningless, the weight of unanswered, undealt with guilt, do you believe that a life like that is actually the good life? A life carrying around the weight of guilt? Is that really, do you believe that's a good life? No one with any intellectual integrity can say, yeah, that's the life that I want. And yet, these are the realities of the unbelieving life. Life apart from our God. The constant fear of death. The crushing weight of guilt. The emptiness of living without any clear, bigger purpose in life. The shame of unconfessed sin. The spiritual darkness of life apart from God. Who wants that? Who would ever call that the good life? Now here's what Jesus is saying, and this is our third point this morning. Life is only fully experienced wherever Jesus and all that he means are appreciated and trusted. This is the only way we're ever going to really enjoy life to the fullest. In fact, John actually makes that point. This is why he says what he does in this section. He says he writes his book so that you may believe, and in believing you may have life. Now, I want to make one final point. It's not a point to write down, but it's very important, I think, and especially as I talk to more and more people and people in this pandemic, people who are struggling, people who are suffering. And the point is this, believing in Jesus is a continual, lifelong action. You know, some people have something written down in the front of their Bibles, or they, they have a date they, they rely on. It's not just that you believe and then you just continue living your life the way that it was. It never changes. And one of the saddest things that I experience in ministry, frankly, is watching people who, watching someone who's professed Christ for many years, who is then completely and existentially derailed when crisis comes. Even though they've been in church their whole lives, perhaps a certain diagnosis, a tragedy, maybe the betrayal of a spouse or, or the loss of a child takes them to a place where their faith absolutely collapses to a degree that it's like they never once believed. And I've seen this many times. It's as though something happens that was so beyond the range of their Christian faith to actually deal with that it made it seem like their faith never actually existed at all. I knew a woman once who was always quick to, to give out biblical counsel to people. In fact, she would always have sort of a Bible verse as a response 
to a question. And, and when people hurt, she, would, she was quick to, to brandish the Bible. And I'm not saying we shouldn't go to the Bible. Of course we should. But for this woman, it was a very sort of a trite, a cliche approach. But when her husband left her for a much younger woman, she was so rocked by that experience that there was never an inkling of spiritual interest again. Never came back to church again. Never uh, had any sort of interest in the things of God again. It was like she never once had been to church her whole life. I think it forces us to ask the question, what happened? I know a pastor in Birmingham, uh, actually he's retired at this point, but he almost got sued for repeating something he had been told by a person in his congregation. He had, had a member of his church that worked for Little Debbie. And this man once told his pastor what the shelf life is for a Little Debbie yodel. Do you have any idea what the shelf life is for a Little Debbie yodel? 17 years. 17 years. Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? That you could have something on your shelf that you could buy and eat 16 years later. Well, this guy, and just in case we have any litigious people watching online, I'm not personally saying that. I have no idea. I'm quoting someone else here. So if you have an issue, I'll put you in touch with that person. But when the person, when this pastor shared that statistic in this message, which he just did just kind of off the cuff, there happened to be at his church that Sunday a guest who was an executive for the Little Debbie Company. And he wrote him a letter immediately after that said, if you ever say such an irresponsible thing again, we will sue you personally. Now, the point that the pastor was trying to make there, I guess somewhat humorously, was wouldn't it be great if the gospel had a shelf life in our own lives of 50 years, 30 years, 17 years, like a little Debbie yodel? And of course, the gospel does have a comprehensive shelf life, but belief has to be nurtured. It's not as though it's not this one-time thing and then you're done nurturing your belief. Belief has to be nurtured. Now, God is the one who preserves our belief as we sing around here so well. And Maggie sings so beautifully, He will hold me fast. Right? He is the one who holds us fast. But he does so by the sustaining power of the gospel. This is why it's so important, so important that we emphasize the right things, which I'm so thankful we do here, in our songs, in our symbols, in our sermons, uh, in our catechisms, we are emphasizing the powerful and miraculous and beautiful aspect of God's saving grace. He who takes those who are lost and finds them and he holds them fast. He who takes those who are enemies and he makes them friends. He who takes those who were at odds with him, strangers, and he prepares for them a place at the table. It's all about the beautiful matchless, wonderful grace of God. And as we continue to immerse ourselves in that story of grace, the beautiful story of redemption, God does what only He can do. He strengthens and He bolsters, He empowers our belief for the long haul. Praise God for His grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be quick to confess this morning. We have done nothing to save ourselves, and we can do nothing to keep ourselves saved. It is your work. You begin what you finish. Salvation from beginning to end is a work of the sovereign, loving, merciful, and gracious God. 
And Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to become more aware, spiritually aware of your grace, of your kindness. And as we sort of let the waves wash over us of your love and your tenderness and your grace, strengthen our belief. Enable belief in those who have rejected you. Bring them to saving faith. Father, comfort us with the reality of your faithfulness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.